That song is lit. How do you feel about that? I'm a big fan. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Business Casual with Daniel Litwin and Tyler Kern. We're still working on a subtitle, but basically it's something like the essential B2B radio morning show podcast interview concept. It's everything you need to know (laughs) to start your business day, buddy. I mean, yeah, basically just throw any kind of media content name into the subtitle. We should make it like three lines thick. It just goes on and on and on. (laughs) Comically long. (laughs) Yeah, right. Comically long. Um, So yeah, everyone, welcome to the first episode of Business Casual. We've done a few testers. We felt good about it, and it's time to launch it for real. So Tyler and I are going to be the hosts on this show, and the whole concept is we want to break down what's interesting, what's exciting, what's raising some eyebrows in B2B, have some fun while we do it. Interview some people. We're going to stretch our legs a little bit. We have a big interview coming up with Brian Eisenberg. He's one of just the retail gurus out there in the world. We're going to discuss Amazon and Google. Google kind of encroaching in on Amazon's territory a little bit with a redesign of their shopping page. Yeah, or if not encroaching, at least taking back some of that territory. Trying to. They're having territory disputes right now. It's, It's dicey. It is dicey. It's dicey. It is dicey. So um, we'll have Brian Eisenberg on at 8.15 to discuss yep. that. 8.15 Central Time, depending on where you are in the world as you listen to this. Correct. And we've got a bunch of other juicy content we're going to unpack. Everything from um, IoT to wood-burning pizza. Mmm, tasty. We're also going to be chatting about uh, digital transformation of retail stores, food and beverage stores. That's right. And we're also going to break down some policy coming down from Washington that affects business. And it's a really interesting one. It's one that most people should be like, oh, yeah, that's a good move. So absolutely, we'll stop teasing and actually jump into the content. Uh, Tyler, on this day, what happened? On this day. (laughs) Today is the birthday of Chris Harrison, the host of The Bachelor franchise. He turns 48 years old today. Daniel Litwin. Wow. Um, Are you a fan of the Bachelor franchise? You know, for the longest time, it was the franchise I would kind of stake a claim on ignoring. You know, it's like, oh, I'm too good to watch that show, or, oh, yeah, I'll never watch that show. But uh, being in a a relationship with a significant other, she has encouraged Bachelorette watching. So I started with Bachelorette. Sure. Which I think to a degree might be less problematic i don't know i'm not gonna it's fun television it's i'm hooked i'm not gonna lie i call it the best worst television yeah honestly they do such a great job of just nailing characters and making you hate watch certain people literally uh they crush it and chris harrison is on it what do you think chris harrison's celebrity net worth is by the way um at least a few million what, like maybe 17, 18 million? Oh, you nearly crushed it. 16 million. Wow. Yeah, it's okay. his estimated celebrity net worth. Wow. So happy birthday to one Chris Harrison. It's a good day. What a guy. Chris Harrison land. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, that just really encapsulates um, the way media has evolved. And I, I, I don't know. Like, I think when we see The Bachelorette, we're also seeing. Like a, a transition of the reality show. Like, I feel like the 
the trashiest reality shows mm-hmm. have kind of faded into the background a little bit. Right. And I feel like The Bachelor is like the main one that persists and has almost evolved to to try to be like maybe more realistic or more I don't know, less, like, absurd in every way. So here's one of the things that they've done really well, and I just did a podcast on this with some of our interns here at Market Scale, is simply that they use the people that have been on the scale to become influencers for them after the show is over. Ooh. And so they are all live-tweeting the show. They basically have an army of former cast members always tweeting the show that have basically become influencers. They're all, you know, they'll have a million followers on Instagram. So every time there's an episode, they're posting stuff. They're stirring up conversation about it and that sort of thing, which is actually something I think businesses could kind of learn from The Bachelor, The Bachelorette. Use the people that you have at your disposal to be influencers on your behalf, um, which is something that we do with podcasts here at MarketScale is use the employees from various companies to yeah. speak on that company's behalf as far as, hey, here's what we know. Here's our market advantage and that sort of thing. And so that's something that uh, The Bachelor and The Bachelorette has done really, really well is that earned media, yeah. that media where people are tweeting out for you and they hardly have to advertise. Bachelor Nation. Bachelor Nation is all over it. So <laughs> anyways, that, that's that's an observation from me. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it's a great one. I totally agree. I mean, influencer marketing is the future of marketing. So the fact that they now stake the brand of their show on the people that come on, and not just for that season, but in the long run. Exactly. Puts definitely more of an emphasis on who they bring on the show, how they want to represent those people while they're on the show, and then how they want to use them after the fact. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's a pretty interesting dynamic to see. Okay, I think we need to cut to our first segment. Yes. Uh, this is called Pivot, Pivot, Pivot. Pivot! There we go. Pivot! Oh, it's so good. Everyone loves Ross. Everyone loves Ross. Actually, hot take. Do they? Ross is my least favorite character Really? I think he's a bad guy throughout the majority of the show, but it's wrapped in humor, so nobody actually like thinks of him as a bad guy. Have you ever but watched Friends actually... without the laugh track? No. Oh my god, it is so good. Really? There's this one where it's like Ross is like f- I don't know, following someone in a trench coat or something. I don't mm-hmm. know, and it's supposed to be played off as like comedic love or something, but they remove the laugh track, so it's like, oh, this is it's actually <laughs> this creepy. is really creepy. Yes, it's so funny. Yes, um, but yes, this segment on our show pivot is basically a a great two-sided issue uh conversation we're going to be playing sound bites on a hot button issue in b2b and we're going to get both sides uh you know obviously there's more than just two sides on a perspective but we're going to pick two we're going to have a little discussion and we're going to break down how we feel about it so tyler what is this episode of pivot on We're going to talk about telemedicine today, Daniel, which is kind of an emerging trend in the world of, uh, you know, healthcare, basically. And so the idea that you could uh, visit a doctor by just hopping over onto your laptop, you tell him your symptoms, you know, you let him kind of like, I don't know, you open your mouth, you say, ah, they look in your throat kind of thing, you know, but (laughs) it's so that's the basic idea is using telemedicine, using technology to remove that having to actually go get in your car, leave work and go to the doctor's office. Office, now you can kind of telemedicine in. Now, there are obviously pros and cons to this. Yeah. Um, and so we're going to hear from Dr. Mac McCormick of Eagle Telemedicine. And he did a podcast with MarketScale talking about how if you are a good communicator, then this shouldn't be a problem, that you can still do your job effectively as a doctor. So here's what he had to say. A physician who is an excellent communicator on a bedside basis will typically be a very good communicator across a telemedicine encounter. 
a physician who's, you know, not as good a communicator and doesn't have the same skill sets as that first one. Telemedicine engagement probably is not going to enhance those skill sets. If anything, it, it may handicap them a little bit more. Yeah, I agree with him there. Um, you know, I feel like the biggest part of primary care, other than just obviously the literal care, it comes down to the relationship between the physician and the patient. Um, it's why you see people place so much of an emphasis on, you know, they don't really care about like which like insurance plan they're on or whatever. What they really care about is finding a great doctor, finding a great hospital, someone that they feel comfortable with, sharing the most intimate parts of their life with them and being open about here's what's ailing me. Here's what's, uh, you know, what needs to change about my life. How can you help me? Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think that would go away with, uh, with telemedicine or with digitizing primary care. Um, but I know we have a con opinion here that thinks otherwise. Yeah, so let's hear this. Uh, the, the con opinion is going to come from Dr. Mark Siegel, and he was on Fox Business, and this is what he had to say. I'm not totally, because, but then I want to say, I don't think I can be replaced or doctors like me. You know why? Half the time, the patient is telling me on their way out the door, by the way, doc, I have chest pain. By the way, Doc, I got to tell you, I'm getting divorced. By the way, Doc, my alcohol consumption is up. Hey, I started smoking again. I would lose that online. I would lose that online. And I think that takes the guts out of the doctor-patient interaction, and that's how I was trained. So he's basically saying that uh, too much of the interaction, too much of the comfortability happens in that interpersonal communication that occurs inside of an office. Now, I definitely see what he's saying, Mm -hmm. and, and I think I've probably been guilty of the same thing. However... It feels like our lives are becoming more digital. You know, we're, we're doing more stuff over the internet, more stuff online, more stuff via telemedicine and that sort of thing. So I, this seems like a trend that's not going to go anywhere. So it's going to be up to the doctor and also the patient to make an adjustment because I think that this is going to be something that only gets more and more popular as our generation grows up, gets older, has to see doctors on a more regular basis. I think this is going to be a trend that you can't actually stop or slow down as more digital natives kind of make their way into out of adolescence and into, you know, kind of maturity. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's think about what do you really do when you go for a checkup? Um, often you get your um, blood pressure measured. Sure. Um, you know, th- you get like sort of a physical examination. Um, let's say you go for a specific reason. Uh, you know, maybe the doctor um, looks down your throat with, you know, the bright... F- <laughs> flashlight I, I wish i knew the terms for all these but something a scope probably sure <laughs> <laughs> um stethoscopes obviously to listen to your heartbeat but whatever i'm not going to get into the details here there are a lot of tangible things that need to happen in that visit i am a little concerned on how possible is it to really do all of that digitally i feel like symptom reading and communication is doable digitally, is Mm -hmm. doable with telemedicine. But once you get into really diagnosing what's happening with someone or having to make critical, uh, I don't know, tests for someone's health, at that point you still need to bring them in. Well, look, yeah, I don't think this is going to be for every situation. For sure. But but I I guess we just need to – we need to be clear on where that distinction is because – we also don't want to sell telemedicine as a replacement 
for going in to actually see your doctor to the point where you think, oh, I can just get the care I need by chatting through my doctor through a managed chatbot service mm-hmm. or by, um, you know, the equivalent of Skyping in with my doctor and, and checking in with them there. Um, I, I feel like to really get to that point where it almost completely replaces going to the hospital, we're going to need complete integration with other technology, including wearables. Oh, I think I think wearables are a huge part of this. Yeah. And as they begin to, not begin, they, they've started to become a larger and larger port, portion of what we do on a regular basis. Like I wear a Fitbit a lot of the time and that kind of thing, which measures your heart rate and your resting heart rate and all of that sort of thing. And so as that becomes a more... I guess, widely used kind of thing. And again, I think there's an older generation that's skeptical of this kind of technology that says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to sit on my computer and, and talk to the doctor, or I'm not going to wear a thing around my wrist that tells me how far I've gone and you know gives me my heart rate. So that's just not something that's going to happen, um, I think, with certain segments of the population. But I think that as our generations get older, um, then I think we'll continue to see more and more of that uh, already in the marketplace so then it's it's not one of those things of okay tell me what your heart rate is right now it's like that's already kind of integrated in don't you think yeah and and let's think also who this is really going to help i think in concept telemedicine is going to assist rural communities or communities that have less direct access to hospitals i mean we've already seen the decline of rural hospitals. It's its plaguing these communities. They're losing their only local health care center. And that's a problem. Uh, you know, if you don't have basic access to health care, that, I mean, that that's an issue. I think Absolutely. we can agree that's an issue. Um, but on the flip side of that, and this is a, a report that I found on um, beckershospitalreview.com. This was a... Uh, an editorial for the BMJ by Dr. Martin Rowland. And basically he said that digitizing primary care might actually do the flip. It might actually exclude some of these neediest populations. Interesting. Which is is interesting. Um, and he bases a lot of this off of one, uh, one study. But basically this was an independent evaluation out of the UK. It's by this service called GP at Hand. And it required all patients to seek primary care um, with a smartphone consultation to at least start there. Um, only if the ailment couldn't be solved virtually would they then go to the clinic. Mm-hmm. And what they found was that according to the evaluation, almost 100% of the people that were using this GP at hand service were aged 20 to 64, which is, is a nice wide range, but the majority of them lived in affluent areas and only a fraction of them actually had chronic care issues. Right. So they tested it out, and it turned out that the the majority of people that were using it and then consuming their uh, primary care physician's time were not the neediest populations. It was people that were generally healthy, were just checking in. Hmm. And is that distracting physicians from spending their care time on – Populations that really need it, people with chronic care issues, maybe people in those rural populations that need full care services. That's a fascinating conversation to have. It, it sure is. So we're going to have to continue to unpack that on a on the next episode of Pivot. 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 <laughs> Pivot. There it is. All right. Well, that was a great segment. Time to transition over. Uh, we're going to take a quick 30-second break real quick, and we're, when we come back, 
We're going to be chatting with Mr. Brian Eisenberg. We're going to be chatting Google. We're going to be chatting Amazon. We're going to be chatting e-commerce. Give us one second. We'll be right back. Have you ever thought to yourself, podcasts are pretty cool. I should use one to market my company. Good news. You're not alone. But where do you start? MarketSkills Thought Leadership Club makes it easy to dive into the world of B2B podcasting. With in-house podcast production, audio hosting, and more, MarketScale can be your podcast partner that sets you up as a thought leader in your industry, creating the content that powers B2B. For more information, head to MarketScale.com and find out what thousands of companies already know to be true, that podcasting is the future of thought leadership in B2B marketing. All right. All right. Welcome back. Hey, yo. Okay, so we're going to be chatting with Mr. Brian Eisenberg. First, I want to just kind of intro what it is we're going to be talking about here. So Google just rolled out a new shopping homepage. Um, There have been many iterations of Google's e-commerce platform, uh, like their shopping tab on on their homepage. Uh, But this time, they're finally hoping to achieve frictionless, excuse me, frictionless e-commerce to keep people on Google. Um, So how are they going to do that? They're going to separate their shopping by category. They're going to personalize it with your browsing history. um, And their VP of product management said that it'll give access to millions of items from thousands of stores. And at the core of this, Google is hoping to take aim at Amazon to take back some of their product search share. Because um, there was this uh, AdeptMind survey that found nearly 50% of Internet users are starting their product searches on Amazon compared to only about a third that started on Google. So basically when people want to buy something, they're going to Amazon first. They're not utilizing the Google search function to actually find the products they want. And Google thinks, well, hey, I mean, we're Google. Let's keep people on our site longer. Let's redesign the page. So do they have a shot at combating Amazon? Here's Brian Eisenberg to give his perspective. Brian Eisenberg is a partner at Buyer Legends. I, I would say he's a self-proclaimed Amazon expert. He might say differently. Brian, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. It's great to have you on. You are our first caller on the radio show, so we're really honored to have you on, and uh, we definitely enjoy the conversation. So, Brian, I sent you the story. Uh, I know you gave it a read. What are your initial thoughts? Do you think that Amazon... Uh, is going to be putting up a fight now with Google uh, to try and keep some of that product search share. Well, let me frame it in a story. So, unfortunately, day before yesterday, my son broke his ankle, a 14-year-old athlete. And I went ahead, and uh, the doctor actually told me, go on Amazon and order you know, particular things so that he could put his cast and get into the shower. Because as you can imagine, as a 14-year-old athlete might be, uh, he's eventually going to stink. <laughs> so I go ahead and... I figured I would try the same search on Google Shopping. Went ahead, found the exact same item I ordered from Amazon. It's coming this morning uh, from Amazon. But I said, let me go look at it on Google Shopping. The best option it had was one to send me to a eBay store. Huh. The second best option it presented me was to get from Walmart. I'm like, okay, Walmart. And at least the Walmart price was comparable with the Amazon price. Only one problem. It wouldn't show up either for free shipping or for pickup until the 31st of this month. Which is... And I'm sorry, I don't think late. my son can wait till the 31st <laughs> yeah. to shower. Yeah, that... <laughs> he might not live in the house that long. <laughs> you know, the yeah, he might be camping out in the backyard by then. Wow. Okay. Exactly. So, 
So and that's the and that's the fundamental problem, right? That they have, so, right? You know, brand Amazon has always been built on four basic promises. It's what their categories manager looks uh, look at, and it's what the consumer thinks about their brand. It's, it's how you know they've been positioned. We're always looking to have a good price. Uh, and in fact, um, there was a study just done that uh, eight, about eighty-two percent of Amazon's products were cheaper than the minimum price seen in Google Shopping. And on average, Amazon prices were fourteen percent uh, cheaper than Google Shopping's minimum price. Interesting. So even so if Google, that's big. Yeah. So so even if Google takes some of that product search share back, what you're saying is that there may still be a general competition on Amazon's prices being lower, and so therefore people might continue to search on Amazon in the first place. Right. So, that, so that's problem number one. The, 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 the second core thing to them is selection. Now, in selection, I think they can compete. Um, obviously, you know, having so many different stores, but Amazon also has a ton of marketplace people. So I think it's going to be, I think that one's going to be a tough one. And there comes to the point where you, you almost have too much selection, Right. Uh, and, and we're seeing that with, with some of the fight back against, you know, Amazon's third-party knockoffs and stuff like that. So there, there's a delicate balance here. But the third one is the availability. And availability is a real issue. And, that, and, and if that's something that Google said very clear, that, you know, they're not going to be doing about any, any part of that. And the fact of the matter is, you know, here, here's here's a funny one. Uh, you can go ahead and you can do a search for um, Google's Wi-Fi router system, a, a one-pack. I figured that one they should get right. Okay, so I go ahead and I search cheapest price you can find on the Google store is from Google, right? From from their own Google store for ninety nine dollars and eight seventeen tax, but free shipping. Okay, mm-hmm. and the next closest is like CD, CDW, but it won't be delivered for uh, I don't know several days. Meanwhile, I go to Amazon, I look at the exact same router. It's ninety nine dollars, free shipping, and it'll be in my house today. Wow. So is it fair to ask then, Brian, did did Google kind of jump the gun and maybe put the cart in front of the horse? Because Amazon has all of this infrastructure around deliveries and around, uh, you know, making sure that they have access to these products. Did Google kind of build out the, the web page and make that look nice before they actually had the infrastructure to support a better shopping platform? So, I, you know, I think they definitely needed to improve the, uh, the the shopping experience. So, you know, let, let, you know, whatever and whatever part of shopping they're having, and they are. It's not like they don't have any shopping, right? Um, especially with with uh, with some of the voice actions they're trying to do, and, and, and with their voice devices, um, you know, in, in people's houses. You know, they needed to do something to to improve it. But what makes Amazon tick for the consumer? Why they drive so much of e-commerce sales is the fact that you know, yes, I'm gonna get a good price. You know, and, and Amazon has, you know, algorithms that are changing the price uh, down to every six minutes um, just to stay competitive with their, with their top competitors. Wow. You know, they've got the selection. They're, they're, they are, just to put in perspective, Walmart ships um, from six major warehouses. Amazon ships from over 75 fulfillment centers. Hmm. Oh. So, yeah, I mean, we're, okay. yeah, we're, we're talking two totally different levels of, uh, of I guess stake in, in the, yeah. delivery. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And then Amazon's gone ahead and you know if back in 2013 when they first started invest- investing in their Kiva robots, they had about a thousand robots. Uh, this past year, they had over 200,000 robots, uh, dropping the time that takes to package um, a product from 60 minutes down to 15 
and it only requires a few seconds of human intervention. Wow. And that's the part that Google's never going to play in. Uh, yes, you know, you know, they may help people discover products, but what happened is that people have just become so comfortable. That's why there's so many, you know, 100 million prime members mm-hmm. trusting that Amazon's going to get it right. And, it's, and that fourth pillar for them is that, you know, if there's a problem, Amazon's going to take care of it. And, Absolutely. you know, Google has, for some products, they, they have their shopping guarantee, not for everything. So that, that puts me at a greater risk and, and more potential for friction. And the, the point of shopping online is not to have any friction. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, Brian Eisenberg, thank you so much for being our first guest here on Business Casual, presented by MarketScale, and uh, we'll have to do it again in the future. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Absolutely. Brian. Thank you so much, Brian. There he goes. That is Brian Eisenberg from Buyer Legends. So smart when it comes to retail. He's he's the guy, man. He's, yeah. He's the guy you got to go to. I mean, he, he brings up a great point. The fact that we, or who's we? The fact that Amazon has such a developed infrastructure and that they've mastered the frictionless e-commerce experience really puts any other big players, even as big as Google, at a disadvantage already. Because Absolutely. You know, if they want to keep stuff from Amazon and not just redirect back to Amazon, they're going to have to find ways to collaborate with independent retailers, lower prices, maybe find their own ways to um, lower shipping costs or shipping times. It's a it's a long haul battle, but I mean, if anyone can do it, you'd think it'd be Google. You'd think it'd be Google, but Amazon does have quite a head start in that regard. So. Yeah. It's worth following for sure. It's time to get to our next segment. It's going to be called Bullish or Bearish. My fave. Daniel, this bullish is your... Bullish or Bearish. <laughs> you did a great job with that intro stinger. Thank you. That was fabulous. So with Bullish or Bearish, we're going to be doing some quick hitters on stories we liked, and Tyler and I are going to give our hottest or maybe coldest take. We're going to leave that up to you on whether we think this is a bullish move which is, yay, we like it. Or a bearish move, which is a... Bad. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So let's jump into the first one. Krispy Kreme Donuts launched their first redesigned store, which is part of a rebrand of 40-plus stores getting a digital facelift by 2020. It's a technology-focused store that's adding digital menu boards, online order pickup, and digital order confirmation. Krispy Kreme's being launched into the future. Bullish or bearish on that? Uh, bearish on this here, Daniel. Wow. Because... I thought you were a donut guy. I, I am a donut guy. That's kind of the thing, though, is that uh, <laughs> I don't think that the barrier between people eating a ton of donuts is technology or <laughs> is a you know technology-facing store or uh-huh. anything like that. I think it's just that people, you know, we. I think people have become more and more conscious about what they eat recently. Um, that, that more people are going vegan, more people are going vegetarian, more people are trying to at least take into account uh, what they're putting into their bodies, which is why I'm going bearish on this, because I, I just don't think that uh, that Krispy Kreme's issue is, you know, enough technology in their store. I, I simply think that it's, uh, it's, a, it's more of just a health conscious type thing. Yeah, it's a PR move. Exactly. Here's the second one. Starbucks is partnering with Uber Eats in early 2020. 95% of the menu will be available, excluding heavy foam items, and the partnership will include collaboration on delivery technology and innovation. So Starbucks partnering with Uber Eats. Are you bullish or bearish on this here, Daniel? Um, I think I'm also bearish on it. Really? I mean, okay. We're pessimistic. I know. In concept, yeah, great. Delivering coffee sounds super. But... 
I feel like even though they're writing off the foam items because they lose some of their value by the time they get to you, that's going to happen regardless. I mean, right. I feel like if you order something through Uber Eats, and by the time it gets to you, I mean, we're talking at least five to ten minutes of difference there. Mm-hmm. How much of that heat have you already lost? How much of that ice has already melted? Sure. And I think there's just something gratifying about walking into the coffee shop. You smell the aromas. You're in that that I don't know comfortable space for some people it's it's like their safe space sure. being in the coffee shop sure. whether it's a Starbucks or an independent one and I think that won't get replaced just through the convenience of nabbing coffee through Uber Eats because most places of employment have coffee there already so if it's a straight up lazy thing where you don't want to leave your home to get coffee like I I get it but I feel like there's already so many convenient ways to get your coffee yeah something about getting your coffee delivered to you from a, a third party it just sounds way too expensive and way too inconvenient, honestly, to really grab hold. That's my bearish opinion on this one. I think that's fair. All right, last one. Pizza Hut is testing Cubby technology. We're throwing it back to kindergarten. This is in Brightloom in L.A. The Cubby system allows for digital orders and physical pickups without ever having to interact with another person. Tyler, your dream. The, cu- <laughs> the cubbies will display the name and order of the guest and have a special lining inside that will keep pizza hot and drinks cool. Bullish or bearish? Uh, we're just going to go all negative today. All negative. I'm bearish blah, on this. Well, is, is the friction of having to pick up pizza really the, the interaction at the counter? And maybe some people might tell me I'm wrong, but the friction of having to pick up pizza is getting in my car, driving to wherever I'm going, then parking, then getting out, and all of that, like the entire process. All you've really removed is the easiest part of it for me, which is just going up, you know, maybe swiping my credit card if I didn't already pay online, and then being handed pizza. That's quite literally the easiest part of it. So I'm kind of bearish on it because Brian Eisenberg has pointed out in other podcasts that all, like, the, the most frictionless retail experience still has friction to it. Yeah. You know, you can go to these Amazon uh, Go stores that, you know, scan you automatically and you just walk out with the items and it's like, you don't have to check out, it's frictionless. No, you still have to go to the store. There's still friction Right, there. right. And so there is still a friction point in this. It's just not quite as as large, but it, it, to me, it's, it's not going to be this huge innovation in the world of pizza. It feels very much like an aesthetic change more so than anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh... And there better be some good locker technology there because I have a feeling we might start seeing stolen pizzas. Boy, if someone steals my pizza, then we're going to have big problems. Big problems, especially if I drove my butt all the way to Pizza Hut. Exactly. All the way to Pizza Hut. (laughs) Rather just someone bring it to me. Exactly. All right, so that is bullish or bearish. All right, we're... Or bearish. Raw. Love it. We're running out of time. I want to briefly touch on our last segment here before we wrap up at 8.35. This is going to be called American Made Moving Forward. So this is going to be a little conversational corner I came up with that's going to be on policy affecting American business. Obviously, calls for Bruce. Love it. Mm. So what is this one on? It's on robocalls. Everyone hates robocalls. You ever get that call and they don't even try to pretend that it's not a robot on the other end trying to... I steal got your information. In Chinese the other day. Really? I answered and it said, Ni hao, and then just went on from there, and I was like, what is happening? They really don't know their audience. How did I get on this list? So to put in perspective why I want to bring this up, according to some research by First Orion, it's expected that nearly half of all mobile calls this year will be robocalls, which is insane, right? 
50% of the time you pick up your phone, you can expect it to be a robot on the other end. That for, sounds about right. For better or for worse. And a House bill just passed on Wednesday that more formally takes on unwanted robocalls. It's called the Stopping Bad Robocalls Act. And it was surprisingly unanimous, 429 to 3, which you don't see in the House very often. Wow. So that's pretty nuts. Yeah. Basically, it requires the FCC to update definitions on robocalls, to put earlier and stricter barriers on the calls so consumers aren't targeted without express consent. Um, it ensures carriers can uh, block robocalls by default without more cost to the consumer. Um, more stringent limits on exemptions to these rules requires implementation of more sophisticated caller ID hmm. authentication, also at no extra cost to the consumer. And it cracks down on rule breakers, both in the form of fines and in extending the statute of limitations on going after them. So, I mean, it's pretty nuts. According to Umail, in 2018, there were an estimated 48 b -b -b billion robocalls, oh. which was up 64% from 2016. So, other than being annoying... This has a tangible effect on business, really tangible effect, Okay, because robocalls discourage people from picking up their phones, mm. and companies often use robocalls in a, a really innocent and useful way. Think of all the robocalls you've gotten reminding you of a dentist appointment or a checkup, or a great example is... Um, uh, utility companies, they use calls to confirm their appointments. But now a consumer doesn't answer. The truck rolls up anyways. Someone isn't there because they forgot about the appointment. That's $150 down the drain. That's time wasted, gas wasted. You know, this affects business. And I think it affects the relationship that consumers have with businesses, independent or large. You know, they're just not going to want to answer their phones anymore. Absolutely. And that's a problem. That is a problem. It's Absolutely. A problem. I, I wonder how much uh, emphasis is being placed on this when... It, my initial thought was this is nothing other than a minor annoyance, right? right? Like it's, it's just annoying that it happens, but you're actually putting it in a larger context that makes a lot of sense as far as how it is actually harmful to business. Right. Well, I wish we had more time to continue to unpack this, but we're going to have to wrap up. This is the first episode of Business Casual. Tyler, it was a pleasure. It has absolutely been a pleasure, Daniel. We will be here every Friday. 8 a.m. Central 8 Time. So, so don't go anywhere. You better stay planted at your desk. Don't go home for the weekend. Tune back in in exactly a week because we're going to be back with more content. Exactly. And we want you to be here to start off your Friday right with us, whether it's at your desk, on your way to uh, to work or whatever. Yeah. If you hit up the Simple Radio app, you can download that uh, on any uh, any platform and you can find us there. So 